Now, I'm not saying that dating is a first world problem, but these trifling mofos seem to be the kind who'll quote Rumi, but not know what he sacrificed for war, who'll fawn over Lupita, but turn their racial filters on, who take their politics with a latte when I take mine with tear gas. Thank you so much for joining me at the table today. I am so incredibly grateful that our next guest is joining us. Emmy Mahmoud is a good friend of mine, someone who I respect and admire, and someone who after this conversation, I think you are going to be in awe of and amazed by. She's taken her own personal experiences and she has turned them into beautiful poetry and, and, and really shaped the way so many of us look at peace building around the world. Emmy is a UNHCR Goodwill Ambassador and World Champion Poet. She advocates for refugees and disadvantaged communities worldwide. She's been named one of BBC's 100 Most Inspirational Women and co-founded a sickle cell research initiative at the age of 19. She's since worked with President Obama, the Dalai Lama, the Gates Foundation, Google Zeitgeist, and more. And she's moved audiences at the UN General Assembly, World Economic Forum, Forbes 30 Under 30, and countless other high-level events. In 2017, she hosted the first fully inclusive civilian peace talks across Sudan. Then in 2018, she walked 1,000 kilometers for peace in 30 days, mobilizing thousands of people through her One Girl Walk and Dreams for Peace initiatives. In the final stages of the current Darfur peace agreement, Emmy has acted as an advisor on civilian inclusion and citizen representation, putting forth groundbreaking recommendations for civil liberties, gender equality, refugee rights, and the rights of all vulnerable populations. I am so grateful to have Emmy here with us today and so excited that we all get to be having this conversation at the table together. This is At the Table with Dr. Elam Urabit. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am a UN high-level commissioner on health, employment, and economic growth, one of 17 global UN sustainable development goal advocates. I am also a medical doctor and a women's rights champion and strategist. I have traveled the world and met people who are leaders in their own industries. And I've met people who have completely changed the game from names that we know to names that we don't. There are people who have championed inclusive security more than anything else. So At The Table is really a collection of in-depth conversations and interviews with leaders in all industries. It's looking at how we create systems and structures and communities and selves that really represent what we need in the world today. Now, it's been called At The Table because I think the single most important thing is for us to create and cultivate spaces. And this one is mine where I invite you to connect with and to learn from and to teach one another about the importance of inclusive leadership and making sure that when you are at any table, you are bringing somebody with you, an idea with you, a perspective with you that isn't already there. So thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and for being here. And please let me know, what does being at the table mean to you? And who are you bringing with you? Emmy, I am so grateful for you uh, to, to be coming on to the show today. It is so good to get to see you and get to talk to you. Um, how are you feeling? You know, if you had to tell me in two words, how are you feeling today? Oh, I like it's so wonderful to be here. Um, in two words, I would say overly exhausted, but exhausted in a good way. Because <laughs> I think it's been good work that I've been able to do recently. So yeah, so it's a good kind of tired, the kind where you're excited to hit the bed after a long, long 
several weeks. Okay. So what's, what's some of the, some of the work that you've been doing recently that has you feeling that way? Well, it's a, it's a combination of poetry and a little bit of piece work as well. Uh, you probably already know, but you know, uh, last week the Darfur peace agreement was signed for this year and I got to play a hand in that. So that was a really long and tiring, but like very, very fulfilling process. And for poetry, I'm actually recording my audiobook recently. But yeah, but I think I think I just feel really good. And I just turned 27 a couple of days ago. So that Happy was a good thing. <laughs> Rotating around the sun makes you tired. <laughs> Thank you. So, so for for our community here that might not necessarily know, how did you first you're, you're a global, internationally recognized poet? Um, you are someone who has championed peace to the degree that you've walked, you know, a thousand miles um, for peace in, in Sudan. So can you tell us a little bit about where you started and where this desire to not only change your home country of Sudan, but really change the way people talk about peace around the world, where it came from? Mm. So funnily enough, um, the first time I ever wrote a poem, I was seven years old. And my teacher said that a poem is something that rhymes about something you care about. So my first poem went like this. Lions are light brown. I think they like to sit down. And I wrote it on manila paper and I came home and I showed it to my parents in my slanted handwriting of second grade. And they said, you're a poet. Uh, it was such a good feeling <laughs> back then. But I did realize, you know, in those short years before um, it was the problems in Darfur were officially called the genocide. I had the pleasure of just writing about everyday things that a little girl would write about. But when I turned 10, um, I started to learn more about what was happening in my homeland. My mom told me about it. And, you know, it was after we had gone back to Sudan for the second time that I started really writing about it. And my mom told me what was happening. And I don't remember exactly how she said it to me, but it made me really, really want to do the best that I could. And I just remember not being able to stop thinking about my little cousins and my cousins who are older than me too, the ones I had just played with over the summer. And, you know, I always had the luxury of leaving after the summer, but I knew that they would be stuck there. So I thought, how could I help? Well, the way that I always processed my feelings since I was very young uh, was writing poetry. So I sat down and I wrote my first ever poem about Darfur. And the next day, my mom asked me if I would be comfortable sharing it in front of a group of people. And that's when we went to this really big and beautiful church and we spoke, um, everybody took turns and then it was my turn. And I read my poem and I spoke a little bit about my cousins who wouldn't be able to be there in that moment and how for me being able to see them again would be wonderful, but how it might not be a possibility because of what's going on. That day- Who was this? Uh, it was in Philadelphia. Was in I Philadelphia. don't remember the name of the church, but yeah, I was in Philly. How old were you when you first moved to Philly? I was, I think, six or seven. It was in the year 2000. 2000. Because mm -hmm, when we first came to the U.S., I was four and a half. It was in 98. And we lived in Virginia and then in Indiana. And then my mother and my sister and I went to Sudan. And it was the first time that I'd been there since my parents left when I was one because we lived in Yemen um, before we came to the U.S. So my mom, my dad, and I had left for Yemen. We escaped to Yemen. Um, you know, for political reasons and all the different violence that was going on. And, you know, my mom and I reached my dad when he was there. And then after that, we got the visa lottery. My mom got really lucky. <laughs> and she came to the U.S. with all of us and brought us all over. And at that point, it was just the four of us, my mom, my dad, my sister and I. And we lived in Virginia with some of our 
family, friends, and then we moved to Indiana. And then from Indiana, I went to Sudan for six months. And then from Sudan, my dad had already moved to Philly while we were gone. Mm-hmm. And so we left Indiana and came back to Philadelphia. And so do you, do you still remember or have that first poem about Darfur? Um, actually do. I, I don't know where I have it. I could look it up. Hold on a second. <laughs> okay. While you're looking it up, I'll ask you another question. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because you and I have spoken about the emotion that goes into your poetry a lot. Um, yeah. you, you write poems that are, uh, incredibly illustrative and they're incredibly, you know, they're, they're, they allow you to experience a place you are not in. Um, and oftentimes they are talking about really difficult things about drought and famine and war and conflict and loss. Um, and yet you, you are probably one of the most hopeful people I know. So where do you get it from? I've had the great luck of just being able to be, um, in, you know, in the company of people that I love for a very long time. So my parents my sister, my siblings in general, and as time went on, I had more younger siblings in my family and they always gave me hope because I understood that even though for me and my, my sibling Fufu, that, um, you know, our, our lives may have been very deeply affected by war and very intimately informed by grief and a lot of the loss that we had. And, you know, we were former refugees that for my younger siblings, there was a chance that there could be a day where one of them might not really remember all of that and might have a normal childhood. So it always gave me hope um, being able to come back home to that, just to that feeling of having younger people and younger generations. You know, they're not, they're in the same generation, some of them, but it just felt like there was a chance. There was still a chance. And I felt that hope um, every time I went home and I felt that hope every time I went back to Sudan. And I felt it because, you know, it's just, I think, a lot of life is the company that you keep and, you know, and time is just what you make of it. But life is really the company that you keep. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. Um, so you found the poem. Can you read it to us? Uh, sure. <laughs> I haven't read this in a very long time, but this is from the words of a, you know, a 10 or 11 year old. War in Darfur. The merciless soldier with a heart that's a boulder driven by money, blinded by fear. Desperate cries for help, he'll never hear. Roaming the streets with a charred black soul. No one is safe, not woman, not man, not young, and not old. Knowledge is forcibly pushed aside because power has not taken the stride. What was once a sanctuary, a haven for all, is now no haven, but a place where innocent lives did fall. What's going on is a senseless, cold-hearted war, bad against good, strong against weak, all in Darfur. Possessions are gone. Everything is wrong. People aren't happy and homeless and hungry. Worst of all is that no one is free. Families are shattered in this big bloody battle. Good people lose jobs and are replaced by slops. No female is safe because she is a subject to rape. People are murdered throughout the nation. Because of this, mostly orphans make up the population. There is no respect and there is no pride. The only thing there is, is genocide. I believe it's time to put this all to an end, for there are innocent lives to defend. Take action or sit in grief. If you still don't know which side to choose, ask yourself one question. What did the children do? 
Wow. You wrote that when you were 10. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. So can can you give us a little bit of background on what was happening in Sudan at the time, like, and what continues to be happening that's really inspired so much of your poetry and your piece work? Um, at the time, so early on, uh, the government in Sudan, run by also the Bashir regime, which fell last year. Um, ooh, it's really hard to explain, but basically what they did is that they created a sponsored campaign against indigenous African tribes in um, in Darfur, indigenous people in, in Darfur, because not everyone in Darfur was targeted, um, but specifically people who were in our culture considered black or considered, you know, of more of African descent than of like a different counterpart. Um, so people who were indigenous were targeted, including my family and other, other families as well. Uh, 400,000 people were killed and the campaign, the murderous, you know, genocide was run by the, uh, that was actually affected or, in, you know, executed by the Janjaweed. And, you know, since then, a lot of people have come to the forefront to testify or to, to speak up and explain that, yeah, no, they were paid by the regime. This was something that was created against the people. And a lot of people will try to argue that there were, you know, other issues at play, uh, such as deforest not deforestation desertification we call it desertification so there was climate change climate change was a part of it but the reality is that the way that it all started was in the 90s um, when there were initial clashes between people who herd and people who um depend on agriculture instead so herders and farmers the government didn't respond to protect and the other reason that you know we always in in my community in our culture, we said it was never really about farmers and herders. It's because, well, in my, in my tribe, who was also still targeted, you know, many, many, many thousands of us killed and millions still displaced, we're herders. My family are herders and we're indigenous. And so it was the color of our skin or the, it wasn't even the color of the skin because honestly in Sudan, like everyone is so mixed, but there are a lot of things that make you drastically or feel like that you're drastically different from the other. Mm-hmm. And for the Bashir regime, their purposes, their purposes were that since there was this very small group of people who were in charge for a very long time, and because they really, really, really believed in Arab supremacy, and they really believed in, you know, creating an Arab belt across, you know, across uh, North Africa and making Sudan a very specifically non-Indigenous or just, just Arab country. And I say this as somebody who is one-fourth Afro-Arab, like saying that, you know, this was very, very clearly like what they wanted to institute. So they mm-hmm. funded people that they liked to get rid of everyone that they didn't like. And at some point, um, the Janjaweed were calling Darfur, Dar al-Arab. And in our language, Dar means the home of. So it's called Darfur because the four, tri- the four tribe um, was used to be like the most prominent or like the biggest tribe way back when, when it was named. And, you know, all the different regions in the area came together and they all came under the kingdom of Darfur. Um, but that was that was something that was really big too for the people there, understanding that we were being erased in many, many ways. So mm-hmm. deciding that it's no longer Darfur. This is not your home anymore. It's now Dar al-Arab. So it really contributed to the Arab supremacy. What they did is what they took ethnicity and then they politicized it first. Yeah. And after that, they weaponized it. 
So after you weaponize that kind of violence or what you weaponize racial violence, what happens or like you weaponize, sorry, when you weaponize racial supremacy, any kind of it, whether it's Arab supremacy, white supremacy, whatever it is, if you weaponize it after you politicize it, genocide happens. And that's mm-hmm. what's happened in the past over and over again. Even if it's um, religion, anything, you yeah. take the difference between somebody, you take identity and you weaponize that against someone, you know, people die. And that's what ended up happening. And so when you went back, you decided to walk a thousand kilometers, you did a peace walk, and you really brought a whole community with you. And what what was it that triggered that? Well, I was standing in in Darfur, in El Fashir, and I saw this giant And this was what year? 2017. 2017. So you were how old? I was, oh, actually, (laughs) I can't do the math. How old was I? Like 23? I want to say, hold on, let me check. I think I was 23. Sorry. <laughs> I think you're 23, yeah. Yeah, I was 23. So when I was 23, I was, it, was, it was in 2017. I was on a family vacation with my mom and all of my younger siblings. I've never been to Sudan with my dad because he was still targeted um, by the regime. And, you know, we've always gone under a different last name than like what my dad's name is considered in Sudan. And um, it's still our last name because, you know, in, in our culture, like the, your last name is just your father's name, his father's name, his father's name. So we yeah. just cut it off at a different point <laughs> for safety reasons. Um, but yeah, so we went home and we went to, you know, went from Khartoum to Darfur. And, and the thing that always struck me whenever we went to Sudan is just that when you're in Khartoum, it's as if nothing is happening. And then you go to Darfur and then all of a sudden the Antonov planes are above you know, all the warplanes and everything else is there. Um, so same thing again, but this time it was just the completely militarized state um, in full action. So I, I see Al-Fashr and all of Darfur, even now, even after the revolution, they can, they're occupied. They're occupied by all of these armed militia and armed, you know, military people and police people and everything who are not from our areas. So that was the thing that was really big. Um, but I'll explain that a little bit later. I saw a giant billboard and the billboard said, which means security is the responsibility of all. And there were faces of John Dewey crossed out, artillery crossed out, you know, um, huge trucks with machine guns on the back that was crossed out. And it was promoting the weapons for amnesty program that the government was running. And the idea of that program, after I asked a couple questions um, around the town and just ask people like what's going on with this they said oh it's the campaign the government is running they're saying you bring in your weapons if you're like the militia or whoever and they won't ask any questions so just take the weapons and leave you alone and they're having this thing called the rapid support forces mm-hmm. run this campaign the rsf or a damasaria and i said what is this even real and everybody was like nope <laughs> they're just taking the guns from people they don't like so like um uh, uh, what are they called? The armed movements, formerly known as rebel groups and things like that. And again, I don't use that language anymore because it was just more of the language that the old regime used to use to mm-hmm. delegitimize, um, you know, Darfur and to make it and to create a false equivalency between what they were doing and what people were doing to try and protect themselves. Yeah. I don't support uh, what's it called violence, but I definitely think that it's really, really wrong to equate. Yeah. The perpetrator and the victim. Yeah, exactly. Um, so long story short, yeah, we found out pretty quickly that pe- they were taking the guns from people who they didn't like and then rearming people that they supported. So more Arab supremacy, more attacking indigenous people. And when I was in the camps asking questions and, you know, conducting um, peace 
talks, I decided to start asking questions and creating poetry town halls and do peace talks as well, like civilian peace talks. So I felt like another, another feeling that I got was uh, everyone kept saying, you know, we'll have peace when the government and the, what's it called, the armed groups decide what they want. And mm -hmm. I said, no, like it should be peace is the responsibility of all, not security is the responsibility of all. Like this is clearly propaganda. If there was one thing that the Bashir regime was really good at, it was propaganda. They were really great at that. Most regimes have that in common. Yeah, <laughs> super great at it. Yeah, um, yeah. It was awful. But yeah, so the thing that was, um, the thing that hit me the hardest was just saying, well, if they're doing this weapons for amnesty program, who are they trying to fool? Like, why would they be doing this? And I, as I did more digging and more speaking to different organizations and things, I found that they were trying to get Sudan off the United States state sponsors of terror list. And in order to do that, they had to comply with certain steps that the U.S. government had put into place, um, including but not limited to making steps toward peace. Mm -hmm. And so for them, they were saying, okay, if we run this big campaign, make it seem like we're taking the guns away, you know, weapons for amnesty, and then we'll be making efforts toward peace, and then, you know, we can just get off the state sponsor of terrorists while they're still sponsoring domestic terrorism. Mm -hmm. um, and so I decided, well, what are they trying to prove? They're trying to prove that it's safe. They're trying to say that Sudan is safe because that was the other language that everybody kept saying. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of security now. Everything is safe. And I was like, is this true? Everybody was like, no, it's not. It's not true, but this is what we're expected to say. And, you know, um, so I said, all right, so if they're saying that it's safe, then I'm going to walk. <laughs> I said, if it's safe, if it's safe, like they're saying that it is, because that's what they're trying to push in the news and everything, yeah. then I'm going to walk across Sudan. And so I also chose walking because I know that my people have done that for centuries. You know, just that, um, that migration from Darfur eastward. Mm -hmm. for like markets for a lot of different reasons like they would migrate and I also thought about how many of my people were now refugees and me myself being a former refugee and I thought well you know for all of these years these past like 15 you know years uh, at that point it felt like we were all leaving we're all migrating outwards we we're really just escaping you know um, trying to get to safety trying to find refuge somewhere else because home wasn't safe anymore. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, what would be a good way to reverse that? And I thought, well, instead of walking out, why don't I just symbolically walk inward? And that would draw attention to the cause of peace and it would get people to understand that we're all in it together and that the people in power are not the only ones who have to determine what's going on with peace. Like We can't just abdicate all of our power because they took it. And so I was saying that a good way to really get it back is just to show that we're still here and we're still, you know, going to come up with peace and we're going to figure it out, even if you don't support us. Mm -hmm. and, and how long, how many days did it take you to walk and how many people joined you? It took 30 days and thousands of people joined across the way. On the first day, I didn't even know if anyone was going to join because I, I faced a lot of trouble um, in planning this. Um, first and foremost, from the Sudanese government. Uh, I found out very early on from some of my like um, 
uh, colleagues in UNHCR that if you're going to operate in Sudan, like this was uh, something that I learned as advice, people who just informally advised me along the way because nobody could help because it was a regime, right? And so a lot of people advised me informally in the U.S. Embassy and in what's it called um, in UNHCR and a lot of other organizations. So they said, well, first thing you need to do is front load all of your permissions. And I asked them why, and they said, well, because the regime will just use it as an excuse Mm -hmm. to get rid of you, right? They'll say, oh, if we knew that she was there, you know, nothing would have happened to her. And so then I started to understand that, like, if you're going to do something in Sudan, you need to understand the propaganda and you need to figure out how to operate under a police state that's run by a genocidal dictator. I was like, okay. So I basically went into a crash course on Sudani politics and on international politics <laughs> in the lead up to it all. And the only thing I had was one, being from Darfur and two, being not just an American, but somebody who has a big platform. My platform mm -hmm. was something really important because it made it a lot safer for me to put everything on myself. Mm -hmm. I say safe in a very relative way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, is that, is that siren a problem? It's gone. Okay, great. So um, it made it safer because I realized that, you know, all I have to do is just ask people where they went wrong. Because a lot of people have acted in Darfur for a very long time, you know, US government, a lot of different people. And I even had a meeting with the rebel groups in uh, Uganda while I was on a uh, UNHCR trip on my off time. They just came to my family's house <laughs> um, because my, my, in fact, my uncle, one of my uncles, my actual uncle said to me, oh, uncle so-and-so is coming. I was like, uncle so-and-so? Wait, what? Like that uncle so-and-so? And they were like, yeah. I was like, why is he here? And hilariously enough, he was there to celebrate um, the naming ceremony that we were having for one of my new little cousins. One of my new little cousins was born. He was just, they were like, oh, he's just here for the party. We're like, seriously? And they were like, yeah, we didn't know he was coming. <laughs> I was like, okay. So word travels fast, apparently. And they knew that I was there. And, you know, I took the meeting with them. I took the meeting because um, they said that they just wanted to, like, talk a little bit about peace and, like, things that I was considering and things like that. And they invited us to lunch, me and my uncle. And so we went in informally as just, like, a How did your uncle know them? Um, because we're all from Darfur. And they were, what's it called? We all have like a, a what's it called? A diaspora community, mm -hmm. right? Not everyone, of course, knows everyone. But, you know, when you're an immigrant community in a foreign country, Uganda is foreign to us. You know who else is there. And mm -hmm. so my uncles themselves were very, very prominent uh, in the area because they were running a um, import-export food company and working for the World Food Program and other organizations as well. Like they were delivering the food mm -hmm. in South Sudan to help with the hunger crisis. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, you know, people in South Sudan knew them and Darfur, everywhere else knew them because a lot of these people grew up together. In fact, my dad actually grew up next door to the former dictator. Um, and so he knew him, he knew him early on and he knew him very well and he was close friends with his brothers. And so my dad was actually one of the first people to say, maybe Bashir doesn't know when it all started. And my mom told me this story and she said, poor, poor Ibrahim. <laughs> she said that and I was like, wait, dad really thought that maybe he doesn't know? It's like, yeah, that's actually how my dad ended up getting kicked out. Um, and all of us had to like escape because, you know, he, he offended him um, by not joining him and by going against him. And so his uh, soldiers, so the soldiers of the, what's it called, of Bashir, they were sent to my dad's hospital one day and they brought the body of one of his close friends who's also a doctor. Um, and they said to him, he died of malaria, right? So it was like a very clear threat. Yeah. And my dad had to calmly 
after being woken up at like 2 a.m. in the middle of the night, um, just say what he wanted to say. And instead of cooperating, my dad said no, because he was clearly tortured and killed. So my dad said, no, he was not. He did not die of malaria. And they were like, are you sure? And my dad said, yes, I'm sure. And so they went away for a bit and they came back and they said, we want to bury him. What is your recommendation? And so at that point, my dad is supposed to say, okay, you know, it's, it's like they're basically testing to see if he'll cooperate. Um, will he form the death certificate? Will he let them bury him? My dad said, I think that you should put him on ice until, you know, a proper autopsy can be done in the morning to investigate how he died. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay. And they ended up leaving the hospital. And, uh, you know, a little bit later, my dad received the same severance notice that most people, uh, what's it called, receive in our, in our, what's it, in our, uh, sorry, a couple, I don't know if it was a couple days or a couple of months, but he received the severance notice after being sent to Yemen. So he was sent to Yemen on a medical mission to mm-hmm. help with the Yemeni war, right? So he was re- relieved of his post and then, sorry, relieved of his post. And then they sent him the severance notice. And they sent him the same severance notice that most of his friends who were killed got before that. At the same time, uh, the other strikes against my dad were, first of all, that, that, that was the last strike. The other two strikes against him were when he was called in to Darfur from his, um, you know, from our tribe and from tribe heads. They called him in because a lot of, I think it was, he said nine people were killed and buried in a mass grave. And my dad wrote a report about it. Um, and he brought it to Bashir's government and, they said that they can't accept the report. Mm-hmm. So he said that he would take the report outside. And he, you know, started distributing the report um, to other places in Egypt and other things like that. So that was, a second, that was another strike against him. And then I think the next one was that they decided to promote him to, like, the inner ring. So, like, in a way, you would basically do the dictator's bidding, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do, then you're okay. But if you don't, not okay. He refused the what's it called promotion because he said he did not accept the report. I will refuse this promotion because he started to understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. And the third strike was not saying that his friend died of malaria. Yes, malaria. Yeah, exactly. So they just escalated and escalated. And meanwhile, my mom was working for Save the Children, and they were advocates against FGM. My parents both were advocates against that. So they didn't like us very much. Um, and then. My dad was sent on the medical mission, the head of, you know, I think it was 40 people, but I have to check that number. But he was sent as the head of a medical mission to Yemen by the Sudanese government and then received his severance notice um, there. While he was in Yemen. Yeah, while he was in Yemen, they said, you don't work for us anymore. Mm -hmm. And so him and all of his um, employees decided to stay in Yemen because they were all fired. And mm-hmm. so it was a very clear, don't come back. Yeah. And he said, my mom and I, and we had to get out as quickly as possible. I didn't have a passport then. My mom had to run around and figure out how to get a passport for me, you know, without my father being there. So, you know, in Sudan, it used to be that you have to have the husband's permission to get a child out of the country. So the father's permission. And things like that. Yeah. So it was and hard. This was, these were stories that you were raised with. Your parents exactly. would talk to you about this and talk to you about this experience. When you went back to Sudan, did you, especially kind of in the past couple of years, as the revolution has happened, as there has been, you know, a, 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 a sense of change in the country, do you, do you feel it? Do you, do you see it? Does, has it? Has it tangibly changed the reality for your community, for indigenous people, or, or, do you, or do you think there's just a lot more that needs to be done before you can 
can be optimistic? Amazingly enough, um, on the first day of my walk, like I said, I just expected no one to show up. But like more than 300 people showed up. And I know 300 minimum because that was how many people we were able to get in the cars from the refugee camps to come um, to the city. And that already changed the history in Sudan because there was no right to assembly. And um, they regularly canceled weddings and, you know, other gatherings for indigenous people just to mess with us. Like, you know, they'd say, oh, this isn't authorized. And, you know, we'd never be able to get it authorized. So it's just like, you know, your, your joy is not allowed either. And this is in Khartoum, by the way. They would always get shut down. So I remember Unimid helped. Every, everyone was there and everyone was really happy with that. Um, so when I was walking and when we were doing the peace talks and everything, it already felt like we were changing something. And the last time I was in Sudan actually was when the revolution started. So I was there and I had to leave as quickly as possible um, because all of my friends and colleagues in the area were saying that, you know, as somebody who is a peace maker, as someone who has done this kind of work and stood up to the regime that was still in power while they were still in power, um, it would be best to leave as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. So you know, my family put me under house arrest. <laughs> they wouldn't let me go to the protests or anything. They said, no, it's way too dangerous. And I, I understood. And they took me out of the country as quickly as possible. Yeah. So how do you feel about the protests? Like, how do you feel about what has happened since? I feel that recently with Darfur starting to join more, because they were already joining over there. That was something that was really hard uh, on me and all of my you know, uh, fellow walkers, especially the ones from the Jamaat al-Fashir, so the al-Fashir University medical students, they were especially, especially amazing because a lot of them walked um, more than 100 kilometers with me. Some of them walked almost, I think, 200, yeah. And then a few people, actually, I think four of us ended up completing the full thousand and a couple people, uh, 500, 600. But the reason that I feel that things are changing a little bit more is because originally, when the revolution quote unquote started. Um, the story was again, very much the same sort of narrative that focuses everything on regions that are like mm -hmm. considered to be the face of Sudan or the only part of Sudan. Um, and I remember that people from South Sudan and people from Darfur, the Nuba mountains, all of us were saying, where was this energy when we needed it, right? Um, but of course we supported and we still support. And it was heartbreaking, especially for me and other people who work in this space to just understand that all of the deaths, to me, every single death that happened um, because of this revolution was preventable. Like mm -hmm. all of those kids did not have to die. My cousin did not have to die. He died um, last year in January. He was one of the first people killed. He was 15 years old. They did not have to die because, you know, after several hundred thousand died in Darfur, after, you know, uh, what's it called? I think over over a million. I don't remember how many million, but a lot of people were killed in South Sudan. Um, and it's just awful, awful, awful. Just to think about the fact that maybe sometimes, one, it doesn't matter how many of us die before people notice it. If they don't notice it, then it doesn't stop, right? Or two, that maybe sometimes the right people have to die before anything will happen. Yeah, until it happens to them. Yeah, exactly. So for me, it's just like, I'm can never ever ever say how grateful I am or how indebted I and everyone in Sudan is to those young people in Khartoum and everywhere who really gave everything of themselves to move the country to where it needs to be now. Do I wish um, it could have been done differently? Absolutely, I wish the world was different. I wish that peace 
is achieved differently. And that's like, that's my life's work now. I'm just understanding that like, it shouldn't be done that way. And that's actually how, how I hoped um, to, sorry, that's what I hope to do with the walk and with the peace talks originally, because it was actually the largest and longest demonstration in Sudan ever, the peace walk that I did, um, that was one, nonviolent, and two, um, resulted in no one being killed. Yeah, and no one being, you know, maimed or attacked by the government because we made our, our safety their responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that's the big challenge right now, just knowing that one, we still have a lot of young people who are alive and we cannot have them having the same fight or like fighting the same fight years from now and dying for their lives years from now. To me, it just broke me and broke my, my heart just to know that even if I'm in the halls of power, even if I have access to the right, right people, quote unquote, um, unless there's a, a giant ideological shift across the world, there will still be people who are lost in the buffer zone. There will still be people who are lost in the time between you sp- when you speak truth to power and when power actually acts. And that's the thing that was really hard to learn. Yeah. Wow. So Emmy, you've written um, a poem about your experience with the walk, yes? Mm-hmm, I have. Do you mind sharing it with us? Yeah. I would love to. It's called The Schoolhouse, and it commemorates uh, some of the walk, the start, and a lot of the other parts. Okay, The Schoolhouse. The fire burned all night as we sang songs of change, huddled close by the east side of the school. How the boobob trees would scrape the sky, how the water would reach down to the root of the well, how the sand ran red with flecks of gold, how the English came and left their mark, each village a land of living ghosts, the grandpa who taught in the time of Nimeri, the aunt born at the start of a 30-year overdue uprising. The wind blew shards that night, cutting our voices short, dicing through our frantic conversations, our stories told from every corner of our land, the medical students making fun of the humanities kids, I, a visitor of both worlds, a settler of none, clamped tightly in between a group of girls who I found pulling me close without question, who wrapped me tight in the embrace of hope. Our hearts turned all outward until the meaty bits shone, damp and bloodied by our sheer audacity to still bleed love into this place, this place that swallowed us whole and spit us out generations later, still fighting for our lives. We slept in two huts by the north side of the school and the boys all huddled under the roofless place, where in the morning students would gather each day, four walls and the hot sun beating down on their hungry backs, but not tomorrow. Tomorrow comes, and I stand at the front of the schoolhouse. No windows, no door, no roof, four walls, one chalkboard, eight benches. The sky is auburn that morning, turned sheet white with the creeping sun, my students crammed in with every teacher, parent, sheikh, engineer, sister we could find. Our green scarves of change wrapped gently around our necks, doubled as masks to keep the dust out when we marched ever eastward toward the capital. Our journey of a thousand miles began with a single desk. We, me standing at the front tongue-tied, core shaken by the magnitude of what we were doing. The words wouldn't leave my mouth. I've stood on both sides of the classroom before, but this time, unsure of what to say, I closed my eyes. Old memories of studying under the burning sun, staved off only by the cool shade of the trees outside our homes, competed in my mind with recent days spent climbing the white 
stone steps of my university. Such a stranger I felt to my own life, visitor of both worlds, settler of none. In that moment, I pushed back against the decades that pressed down on my shoulders and the shoulders of those before me. I peeled away the weight of oppression, unwrapped entire layers of grief. I unpacked and unlearned until I could see the girl I once was staring straight up at me from another life. I looked past her to see the little girls who were looking up at me now from that roofless classroom in the middle of that little town beyond the hills of Al-Fashir. Is this what it means to be human? To have a second chance at life in the ones that follow? To make mistakes so that the younger ones don't have to? To feel that hope is lost only to discover that it lies dormant, resting, waiting for the moment we dare to acknowledge her? There is a silencing that happens in our lives. Curiosity is something we're born with. And somewhere between the cradle and the grave, we lose that will to speak up. Bursting at the seams to share, yet lacking the full capacity, children will literally invent words to describe the things they don't have the language for. And yet us, fully grown, and minds brimming from a life full of learning, have the capacity to express volumes, but we bite our tongues. Whether it be from shock, hopelessness, violence, fatigue, the subtle assertion over time that we don't matter, that our words don't matter, that it always has been and will be this way, whether it be from love lost or tragedy found, or fear in the simplest terms, we lose something. But not today, not anymore. So I spoke, and I still speak. I speak for the mother who couldn't write. I speak for the hunger in every child. I speak for the villages, the cities, the states. I speak for the will to reimagine it all. I speak for the little girl who wanted to grow up and be a poet. I speak for her pen, I speak for her friends, I speak for the day we could reawaken the hope in every child. I walked, we sang, we marched, thousands joined, I came back, put a roof on that school. Miss Zainab, the principal, said it was just in time for the rainy season, that if we hadn't called, they would have taken the kids 25 kilometers a day away just for the chance to learn. A year later, the dictator fell, but the roof is still standing. A year later, I can hear the voices echo off the walls, rain falling on a tin roof, but landing on a brand new day. Wow. Thank you. I think you know this. I've told you this for years. I think your poetry is incredible. I think it tells stories that, uh, that are impossible to hear or imagine otherwise. So thank you for sharing that. What thank is you your favorite poem? My favorite poem? Oh, that's hard. Um, well, I really love Mama. <laughs> I, I love Mama. <laughs> I love Mama. That was the poem that introduced me to you. Yes. Oh, please, I love you so much. <laughs> please share that one, please. Mama, for sure. Um, wait, side note. You want to say that again? Because I wasn't sure if I'm allowed to curse on this one. <laughs> <laughs> you can. You can curse away. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you what your, um, actually, no, I'll just say, please share mama. Okay. Yes, that was the poem that introduced me to you. So please share mama if you're comfortable. Okay, I will. Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding me? I, I always feel really, really seen in the presence of people that I love. <laughs> this is mama. So I'm walking down the street when a man stops me and says, Hey, yo, sister, are you from the motherland? Because my skin is a shade too dark not to have come from foreign soil. 
because this garment on my head screams Africa. Because my body is a beacon calling everyone to come flock to the motherland. I'm like, yeah, I'm from Sudan. Why? He said, mm, yes, you is, because you got a little bit of flavor in you. Don't get me wrong. I'm just admiring what your mama gave you. Let me tell you something about my mama. She can reduce a man to tattered flesh without so much as blinking her words fester beneath your skin. And the whole time, you won't be able to stop cradling her eyes because my mama is a woman, flawless and formidable in the same step. Woman walks into a war zone and has warriors cowering at her feet. My mama holds all of us in her face, in her body, in her blood. And blood is no good once you let it loose. So she always holds us close, keeping us safe from caving in. When I was seven, my mama cradled bullets in the billows of her robes. That same night, she came home and taught me how to get gunpowder out of cotton with a bar of soap. And years later, when the soldiers held her at gunpoint and asked her who she was, she said, I am a daughter of Adam. I am a woman. Who the hell are you? And the last time we went home, we watched our village burn. Soldiers pouring blood from civilian skulls as if they too could turn water into wine. The woman who raised me turned and said, don't be scared. I'm your mother. I'm here, I won't let them through. My mama gave me conviction. Women like her inherit bruised wrists, tired eyes, and a titanium-plated spine. The daughters of widows wearing the wings of amputees. They carry countries between their shoulder blades. Now I'm not saying that dating is a first world problem, but these trifle mofos seem to be. The kind will quote Rumi, but not know what he sacrificed for war. Who'll fawn over Lupita, but turn their racial filters on who take their politics with a latte when I take mine with tear gas. Every guy I meet wants to be my introduction to the dark side, wants me to open up this obsidian skin and let him read every tearful page because what survivor hasn't had her struggle made spectacle? Don't talk about the motherland unless you know that being from Africa means waking up an afterthought in this country. Don't talk about my flavor unless you know that my flavor is insurrection. It is rebellion, it is resistance. My flavor is burden, it is grit, and it is compromise. And you don't know compromise until so you rebuilt your home but a third time, without bricks, without mortar, without any other option, I turned to the man and said, my mother and I don't walk the streets alone back home anymore. Back home, there are no streets to walk anymore. Thank you. That is, I, I remember the first time I heard that like seven years ago and it's still probably my favorite poem and I've, I've had the, the privilege of hearing so many, but hearing it now in this particular year, in this particular backdrop, does the meaning change for you at all? For mama? It does because I feel older. And when I originally wrote this poem, uh, my senior year of college, I wrote it for the matriarchs in my family. My grandma had just passed away and, you know, I didn't know how to be there for my mom, but my godmom told me being there is the best way to be there. Um, so there's a lot of matriarchs in my family and, um, you know, I never saw myself as one, but now that I'm a little bit older and my youngest sister just turned four, I, I feel like I can start to see myself as one of those matriarchs, <laughs> even though I'm not a mother. <laughs> What's your hope for, for girls like your little sister? Oh, I hope that they'll never have to, you know, second guess themselves because I think I've had to do that a lot. Um, cause I think as children, especially, we go into the world feeling like we're completely invincible, right? Um, boys are allowed to keep feeling that way for a very long time, but we tend to just take it out of girls, um, you know, along the way. And especially black girls are like women of color and things like that. Um, I definitely think, however, 
that if you're raised in a very loving environment and you are in a community that also fosters that kind of love, it changes everything, you know, because you could be raised in a loving environment, but still not be in a community or in a culture or a space society, honestly, that fosters the, you know, the bravery in you or the courage in you. And that's my hope for the young girls. Uh, it's like Muntaha and like my, you know, my younger cousins and things like that. My hope is that they will never, ever, ever find out that it's wrong to be brave or it's wrong to be courageous or they'll never have to hear something like, oh, you need to, I don't know. Keep your opinions. more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Be less aggressive, you know. <laughs> Muntaha thinks that she's on top of the world most days and that's how we like to have her feel. She's got all these older siblings and we're all just pouring love into her and letting her know that if anyone ever tells her different, it's just not something she should listen to. So you've had the experiences of you've you've had the experiences of living through conflict, being a refugee, uh, coming to the U.S., being a black woman in America, and in all of these experiences, you've shared through poetry how you feel, what you've experienced. That's been your that's been not only the way you've invited people in, but it's really, you know, I think an incredibly courageous act because it gives voice to so many other young women who, who may share some of your experience, even if it's just a little bit. Thank you. As we've, I don't know how to ask you this question. Uh I don't know how to ask you this question. What's it supposed to sound like? (laughs) No, the question is more, you know, as we've had kind of these protests as, as more young black women, even in the U.S., around the world. Yeah, around the world. Like, I'm just being a black woman in America. It's black women in life. And indigenous, too. It's crazy. Are speaking up. Muslim. Mm -hmm. What is your... What would be the... I don't want to say best outcome. But what is your... Not hope. Hmm. What does peace look like? For being, a, does that make sense? Okay, I'll I'll, I'll ask. I, like I would say I don't know. I feel like a bit, maybe like what's it called? What does peace look like in our time? Just yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll re-ask that. So having gone through all of these different life experiences and having seen firsthand what conflict looks like and exclusion, and 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 fighting for peace, what does peace look like to you? Hmm. Well, peace looks like, it's funny because every time I think about that, I think of this one thing that um, actually one of the leaders of the art movement had said a while ago, you know, before I started my walk, I told him that I was going to walk for peace. Um, He said, you can't. And I said, why? And he said, well, because the government is going to kill you and, and they'll blame it on us. That's what he said. But he said, they'll kill you. And I said to him, why would they kill me? Like, this is a, a peaceful thing. Like, they're saying that they're for peace as well. And he said, because they don't want to see you grow up. And I just froze. Because I think in, sometimes in life, we just hear something and it just hits you to the core. And that hit me to the core. Um, and I, I'm definitely going to be writing about it a lot more, just that moment. And I said to him, what do you mean? And he said, well, you're Darfori. You're a woman. You're smart you're, well, he called me a girl, actually. He said, you're smart and you're successful. They don't want to see you grow up. They never want to see you grow up. 
And so for me, peace looks like all of us getting to grow up despite everything that people might put against us. And I think, I think he was absolutely right. And I, in that moment, I understood why it is that they worked so hard to give things up. And actually, while I was advising for the peace talks before the signing um, last week, uh, one of the chief negotiators I was working with said this, so, something similar. He said that, you know, we've given ourselves to this, to, to making peace come to fruition or like to these first several steps so that you guys, you younger generations will have a chance. You know, he said it's late for us, but you know, the rest of you will have it. And that, that blew my mind, just understanding that in the fight against erasure, um, you know, and I think, I'm not sure who said this, but there's a quote saying that the biggest thing that's taken from black people, especially in America and just all around the world is, is time, the robbery of time. I, I can't remember exactly who quoted it, who, whose quote it is, but just that idea that we lose time um, and whether it's future time or current time, the time that we spend dedicating ourselves to just making sure people are alive, the time that we spend to make, you know, make them stop killing us, you know, and, and mourning and mourning over our dad and mourning over people who are killed, who are, you know, just like us. And it just, it breaks my heart to know that this is all because some people just don't want to see you grow up. They don't want to see who you'll be if you grow up. They don't want you to be old enough or healthy enough or like strong enough to actually seize power because they're afraid of what you'll do with it. But in my experience, in my experience of being raised by powerful, you know, black women and powerful communities and my dad too, I like my dad as well, but <laughs> you know, it's the, it's the women in my family that have really, really helped me understand this. When you invest power in women, they will invest it back. And I think that's the way to equality and that's what peace looks like. Peace looks like something where one, everyone gets to grow up. And then two, we have women be comfortable stepping into the spotlight and not just in the spotlight where they can bring peace, but in a way where they're not doing all of the labor for it. Because even now with the revolution in Sudan, women were a huge part of it, but now they're being excluded from, you know, a lot of the peace process or like the writing of the constitution or other parts as well. They're trying to include women as much as they can, but as best as they can is not where we need to be right now. So that's always a question, isn't it? Like, why is it that we can all die the same, but that later on when it comes to power, like when it comes to life, you know, men get the power and women are relegated to the sidelines again. So peace is both the opportunity, the right to grow up, and it's also the right to hold and own power. Yeah, exactly. I like power that. without people being threatened by it. I think there's another quote. I'm so horrible. Do you think do you think that is ever possible? Um, it's complicated. Power think, without people feeling threatened? Well, if you're a man, people don't feel threatened if you hold power because they think that you deserve it. You are what power looks like. So they're used to that. But if you're not what power looks like, you know, it's so threatened peace people is read, So peace is redefining what we see as powerful. Yeah, we redefine what power looks like and we are able to break the confines of the roles that are assigned to us. Even um, for me and you as people who are uh, allowed, quote unquote, into these spaces because we worked <laughs> really hard. Um, but because we, when we enter these spaces, that's actually something that um, blew my mind when I first started um, in this space, this workspace. 
um, uh, as I was graduating from college, from Yale and everything, it blew my mind that there would be other people in the room who took the same pathway that I did, you know, school-wise, who had the same training and everything. But because they were, you know, they look like the people in power already, they're given a different kind of role than I am. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's still something that I'm struggling with today, being able to break the confines of my roles in different spaces. Uh, it's been really fun being able to do that with you in HCR. Like that's been that's been really a good experience for me, just being able to break the confines of that and just redefine what a Goodwill ambassador even is. Um, mm -hmm. And I love my team. I love the GWA team that I work with because they really understand it. And, you know, our even our high commissioner, he just encourages us misbehaving occasionally <laughs> because um, Changing what power looks like and changing what we're allowed to do would change everything. Because I've realized that why people feel threatened is because it threatens their worldview. If you're somebody who's been taught your whole life that the world belongs to you and that the world is your right, right? And then you get to the space of power, which also you've been told is your right and also belongs to you. And you get there and you see somebody who looks nothing like you who you've always been told is not as better off as you and is not as capable as you and is not, you know, is not as deserving of it as you, you will feel threatened. Mm -hmm. So if, if you've been, yeah, if you've just grown up in a whole society, just seeing it on TV everywhere, just being told that you're the one who deserves power, everyone else, you know, they don't work hard enough for it. It's very unlikely for them. And you get there and you see them, you're either going to downplay who they are. You're going to, jump through a lot of mental hula hoops to try and make it make sense, uh, or you're gonna have a lot of cognitive dissonance, or you're gonna filter and, and you're going to try to keep them down. So for us to change that, for peace to really happen, we have to change everyone's worldview so that it's no longer seen as an anomaly when a woman is in power, um, but it's seen as something that is necessary. beautiful and normal. Yeah. <laughs> and necessary. And necessary. Oh yeah, the quote that I forgot, I'm sorry, I can't remember who said this quote, but they said that when you're privileged equality feels like a threat yeah when you're when I'm you, definitely butchering it yeah, yeah it's it's it, when, when you are privileged equality feels like oppression that's what it is yeah <laughs> when you're privileged equality feels like oppression it feels like you're losing something that's it we have to get rid of the zero-sum mindset people having better opportunities in Sudan or in Darfur will not threaten people having better opportunities all over the world so how do we how do we reshape what power looks like? Because it's not just about redefining who gets to hold power, right? It's also about reshaping what we inherently think power is from being, you know, brute force or zero sum to being compassionate and empowering and welcoming and accepting. And how do we shift that mindset? Especially, I mean, we're, we're watching the news. We hear what's happening. Yeah, I mean, exactly. even countries that are quote unquote advanced or democratic or yeah. are having significant challenges with yeah. this idea of, of community strength and, mm -hmm. and collective power. So how do we actually, how do we shift that? Well, I think something difficult that's been going on around the world is that a lot of people take things way too personally. And when I say too personally, I just mean the people who are in power. <laughs> they take young people rising up or young people wanting to stand for racial solidarity or marching in the streets or whatever it is. They see it as a personal threat to their identities and their livelihood. And that's something that actually brings to mind um, some of the language that's used in, in the U.S. a lot. Um, people say things like identity politics and things like that. When you say identity politics or when you say you don't like identity politics or there shouldn't be any, 
I'm asking you, which identities are you talking about specifically, right? Is it, is it that certain identities aren't allowed? I'm not sure who said this, but, you know, because white, Anglo-Saxon, well-off male, that's an identity. That is an identity. So when you say that identity politics is a problem or is the problem, um, you have to check yourself because you have an identity as well. And for some reason, a lot of people seem to think that, like we said earlier, the equality that women are asking for, or that young people or that black people are asking for, and we're not even asking for equality as black people. We are eventually, but right now, we're just asking you to stop killing us. Like, it's just a very simple question. And for me, having to have done, having to do that in Darfur, right? Having to fight to not be killed in Darfur and then having to come and do the same thing in, Sudan, in the US, I just called it Sudan, Freudian slip. So, <laughs> and I was talking to my dad about it as well. My dad said, when I told him about the prison systems and everything, I told him what was going on. It, it just blew his mind. He's like, it's the same as Sudan. And I said, exactly. Like, it just feels like we went from one dictatorship to another. And it breaks my heart because it's like, how can you be fighting the same fight? I'm sorry, I just got really, really emotional because it is, it's an emotional thing. Um, and emotion is one of my superpowers. So, <laughs> so it's totally fine. That's actually something that's really funny. A compliment that people tend to give me a lot um, when I do poetry in those spaces in like the halls of power and in those spaces, they tend to say, wow, because it, it, was, it was a lot of emotion, but it didn't feel irrational or it didn't feel like you were yeah it's it's kind of hilarious it didn't feel like you and were I losing think that's control. a compliment yeah that I wasn't losing control that I was balanced and measured while I was um oh wow the microaggressions it's amazing yeah but it's just like it's like that's the only thing that you're allowed to do like because if you're in that space as somebody who comes from that identity you're immediately seen with a lot of bias before I speak there's already a lot of thoughts in people's head. Yeah. And I like poetry because it shatters those ideas. Um, the thing that's really funny to me, though, is that, you know, if we're going to start changing everything that's happening in the world right now or trying to make things a little bit better, I think it starts earlier than where we are now. So a lot of the people who are older, a lot of people who are in spaces where they feel like they're losing a lot of things, you know, that's already a little bit further off than where we need to start. We need to start fighting it in the classrooms, you know. Mm -hmm. my um, my younger siblings, I remember in 2016, after the election, um, it was, for the first time they were called, and this is my young, very young siblings, the ones who are now 13 and 10 years old, classmates were calling them the N-word. And they were in like, what, third, fourth grade? Yeah. And it, just, it broke my heart. And I had to sit them down and just tell them that they're loved and that although the world might be strange right now, you know, the same rules still apply. Like, you still have to be nice to people and you still have to, yeah, so... To make that a lot more clear, I think the way to reverse what's happening right now is to, <laughs> is to sit down and start talking about it and not in a way that reinforces a lot of the language and a lot of the apparatuses that uphold these systems of oppression. Yeah. You know, if somebody is sitting there and they're talking to you, even if you think you're a good person, that's the other thing that blows my mind that I've learned in, in the space for working in the space for the past uh, almost five years. It's really, really hard to tell good people that they can do better. You know, because you have a lot of people who are, you know, I don't know, lifelong in the U.S. would say Democrats or like lifelong uh, humanitarians. Yeah. Or even, even if they're not liberal, even if it's like a what's it called? Uh, even if somebody who's conservative or Republican or whatever, who's a humanitarian. Right. Just people who have been dedicating their lives to helping other people, you know, or to feeding hungry children around the world and things like that. Um, if you tell them, hey, so here's where you're at. 
here's where we need you to be. Like, here's how to do better. And they take it so personally. They're just like, but I'm good, right? And I'm just like, yes, you are good. Here's how you do better. And that's the thing that's about, about the young people in the world. Um, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to raise the standard because that's what we're doing. We're just raising the standard of what is considered acceptable around the world, whether it's in politics, whether it's in um, humanitarianism, anywhere that it is. You can't say that you're a humanitarian without saying that you support black people, too, because black people are humans, too. Yeah. Yeah. So you have mentioned a a few times kind of the power of language and how language creates these images in our mind of, you know, who's right, who's wrong, you know, equalizes victim and perpetrator or allows us to see the world in a particular way. And I think one of the most powerful things about your poetry is that you own language. You, you, you use it as genuinely, you use it as a tool, as a weapon to be able to shape a different reality, a different picture for people. So Emmy, I ask every guest if they had to bring any one thing, one idea, one person, one thought, one message to this community, to this table, what would it be? Wow. Um, would it be a word or just in general, what thing that I could In general. Hmm. The thing that I would say is something I learned from my family, for instance, is that, well, my grandmother, she was illiterate because um, women weren't allowed to learn back then. So she took her revenge and her revenge was educating her daughter. Um, and, you know, and I'm her granddaughter now. And, you know, we're just going to continue that legacy. And so that's the thing that that I would do is honestly just every single thing, every single bit of suffering that we've gone through and things like that, is I would start eradicating it at the root now, you know? It's never too early to start speaking up against oppression. And I think that's something that we need to learn um, in all of our systems. I think one of the biggest problems is that in our schooling and our education in general, there are a lot of things that the world has decided are core requirements, like math, you know, language, grammar, social studies, right? But only specific kinds of social studies. (laughs) Um, There are a lot of things that are considered life skills that you need to progress through certain levels of society. So you have to take algebra two before you take pre-calculus and pre-calculus before you take calculus, you know? Um, But we don't have that for how we treat one another. And we don't have that for, you know, racial sensitivity. We We don't have it. So I think that it would be really good to just change that, change it to being something that is seen as acceptable or necessary or required that you have to learn certain things before you progress to certain levels of society, before you can make decisions that will affect millions of people or hundreds of people, depending on your job. So for me, that's one big thing. The other big thing is just knowing, letting people know that they're loved, you know, very, very early on, just letting people know you are loved and you are cared for and that there is enough of that love and care to go around for everyone. And I know it sounds very gushy or mushy and people are going to say, I'm a poet. Um, but the reality <laughs> is that, that in those moments, in the darkest moments that I've ever had, it's love that was able to pull me through. Just having people be able to say, no, I see you. I'm not going to let you disappear. I'm not going to let you just yeah. slip through the cracks. I'm not going to let you be erased to nothing. Cause that's what would have happened to us. If none of us were able to get out and tell people in time, None of us are able to find people to just really believe us. Um, yeah. What happens? Yeah. I would get people to believe us. Yeah. Just believe us. That's the first step. <laughs> there was also one thing I would add to that, which is just don't close the door behind you. You know, a lot of us are given opportunities, even those of us who have, 
who come from that background or have that uh, have have faced oppression. You know, a lot of it, even women in like these um, halls of power, people who are already there, because of the way that history has worked, because it seems that you have to be cutthroat or something to reach where you are. Mm-hmm. You feel like you have to, you know, just stay where you are and wait for everyone else to get there too, because you had to fight that hard. You know, but I would say just don't close the door behind you. You know, we have to start changing it. So I have two more questions for you. So what does it what does it mean to be at the table for you? And and beyond just that, what does it mean to create space or invite others to the table? Thank you. Thank you for that question. It really means a lot. Um, I'm actually have been working for the past uh, year or so on this initiative I'm calling the women uh, the women's table, and it's going to be an organization and we haven't registered it yet. But the work that I was able to do in Sudan really inspired me to understand that. I might be able to do that in other places as well. So the same work that I was doing with UNHCR and all over the world in Nepal and other places, it made me understand that, you know, if we're going to really change the way change happens, uh, we're going to need a bigger boat, essentially. <laughs> um, it's named after the women's table statue at Yale, which commemorates the years that women were allowed at Yale. And it starts in 1969. So very recently, uh, that's when people were, women were first allowed at Yale College, and it just blows my mind. Um, the fight that we've been having to be at the table has just been going on for generation upon generation, and it made me realize that if we're able to build on it, if we're able to activate change makers um, in a way that helps protect them from the dangers that they face, so the thing that hurt me the most um, in seeing what happened in not just Darfur, but what happened in the revolution last year is just that young people usually engage with, what is it? They usually engage with risk. Young people engage with risk when people in power are not comfortable with it. People in power and power itself will just refuse to engage with risk because they don't want to lose anything. And so young people are left to be the ones who engage with risk and they usually have nothing to protect themselves but their own bodies. So I was hoping to build a new table. And so the women's table is a disruptor because it says instead of us having to come to your table on your terms, you have to come to ours. So for me, being at the table means being comfortable enough to say, wait a second. If I'm being brought here in a predefined role, in a predetermined you know, space that I'm only allowed to stretch out as far as you're comfortable with, um, then I'm going to create a new route for change, where that if you want to act in the spaces that are comfortable to me, you need to meet us where we're at and you need to give us equality. Because I think that if we do invest power in women, they will share it and not just share it, they'll grow it. And that's to me is how equality starts to happen. If you put women in charge of equality, we would have equality by now. But instead (laughs) we put other people in charge and it makes it a lot harder. Um, So yeah, so being at the table to me, it looks like that um, and bringing more people to the table actually looks like that. But for me personally, being at the table myself, I remember I only started starting, I only started to feel a little bit more comfortable with that when one of my professors, um, senior year, second semester, when I was invited to this really big meeting, it was actually a small gathering of people, but it was uh, considered to me a, a big meeting because it was with the Rockefeller Foundation and the uh, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences were like co-sponsoring it together and it was in Bellagio 
and it was about ethics and international affairs and nuclear ethics specifically. Every person on that list of speakers uh, were attendees had several letters of PhDs or whatever after their names, and they were, you know, at least 20 years older than I was. And then there I was, not even having my college degree at that point yet. Um, and I said to my professor, I think they're going to use me. And she said, they will. So use them. And I said, what? She said, you have to understand that in these spaces, everyone will come with their own agenda. You also have to understand that you have a right to be there. You deserve to be there. Your voice is just as important and you have something to contribute. So use that. Use that space. Use that time. And don't doubt yourself. And she brought me into that space. She like gave me that pep talk. <laughs> she's amazing. Professor Bradley, she's um, just really amazing. And she's been a woman in global health for a very long time. And now she's running uh, Vassar College. And it's just, to me, it was just like, wow, just wow, you know? <laughs> um, and it helped me remove myself a little bit from that worry that I had, that I would be there as a token or be there as somebody who's just checking off a box that they had someone diverse at the table but i started to understand no that's not that's not what it is like i actually have something to contribute and to her credit uh everyone there everyone at the event kept saying to me how necessary it was that i was there and how much they learned and they actually gave me the floor for a little over an hour and it really really was beautiful to be there and to just be able to take that time in that beautiful place and just be be at the table and be strong enough and comfortable enough to just speak up. I think I, I think everyone should have a professor Bradley who, who yeah. tells them to take up space and use their voice. And my dad, I remember the first time I, I went to him once and said, you know, I think they're going to try to tokenize me. And my dad was like, what do you need? When you show up, what do you need? Because everyone will be in that room. And if there's something you need to say, then that's the perfect opportunity. So, Emmy, I just wanted to say thank you so much for, for being at this table. Um, I, you know, I've, I've thought long and hard about how we extend the space we create and the power that we create to others. And um, I wanted so badly to be able to share so many of the incredible inspirational women and men who have really shaped my leadership and my worldview and helped me understand and taught me um, with this community. And I appreciate that you took the time to share with us. I appreciate that you, that you took the time to, to read some of your poetry and to really open up a lot of, of the history behind your work um, and how that's shaped you. So I have one final ask of you. And it's if you would share a poem that, you're, that you've currently, that you've recently finished or that, that is really powerful to you right now. Um, thank you so much, Anna. That really means a lot. And, you know, the community that we've been able to build together has been very, very instrumental in just keeping me sane during these times. <laughs> because I think that the work can be lonely if you don't have community. And I think that's, that's what's really beautiful about being here and a total no brainer to be here. Um, okay, so this next poem is, well, actually, I guess I could read part of, yeah, I think I'll read the seven stages of grief. Did I write another one recently? Oh, right, that <laughs> the goalkeeper's one. <laughs> on no, in seven stages. I definitely okay. did. So I'll re-ask you that then, okay? 
Yeah, give me a second. Yeah. Oh, and then do okay. we do I tell them my about my audiobook or do I Yes. Yep. Yeah. Um last question I'm gonna ask you is how can people find you? Where can they find you? How can they support you? So I'll ask you that after or I can actually ask you that before the poem and then we can have the poem. So that's the last thing they hear. Okay, perfect. Okay. So Emmy, for all of the people who want to support you, who want to read your poetry, who want to to follow your work, where can they find you and where can they find your work? Amazing. Um, so I actually am in the process of recording my audiobook, and it's going to be released in November by Brilliance Audio. Um, and you can find it on Brilliance's website, so Brilliance Audio, and Amazon and everywhere, hopefully. And um, the other thing is, I, the audiobook is actually for my published book of poems, Sister's Entrance, which was published in 2018. You can also find that online. Um, it was published by Andrews McNeil. And then I have my website, Instagram, Twitter. So Emmy Botuta on Instagram, Emmy the Poet on Twitter. And my website is just emmymahmoud.com with a hyphen in the middle. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for that. And as we say goodbye, can you please read us one of your more recent poems, something that's, that's really been, been close to you lately? Yes, I'm going to read this poem I call The Seven Stages of Grief During Coronavirus Acceptance. It is not featured in my audiobook, but every other poem that I read today, actually only one of the other poems I read today is featured in it. I'll let you find out which one. Okay. The Seven Stages of Grief During Coronavirus Acceptance. You come to the realization that the world isn't limited to the amount of suffering that you're personally capable of. And until every person is no longer hurting, every child no longer beaten, every future no longer stolen, there will be suffering, and there will be an obligation to alleviate that suffering, and there will be an obligation to atone, whether it's the sins of our fathers, or the sins of our ancestors, or the sins of our compatriots. And isn't it funny also that you don't have to believe in God to believe in sin, but it's different than sin, because sins are supposed to be forgivable by this great being with the capacity to forgive that we humans don't exactly have. You begin to appreciate that some things are not forgivable that once you've woken up to the understanding that vulnerable people literally die for their lives, there is no alternative but to decide to care. So you resolve to care. Then you realize that vulnerability is not synonymous with weakness and that all of us are vulnerable in some way and that some days we're weaker than most and that some of us don't have that option. So you grieve for those who lost their loved ones and you grieve for the ones you lost too, not just during this crisis, but everyone before it. It takes a toll on you. So you lean into it more and wait, watch the beautiful cracks of your ruin spread like a mosaic. Your belief in humanity is the mortar. The things you tell yourself to sleep better are the tile. You then run out of tile. So you decide that it's someone else's job, just not yours and not anyone you knows, not anyone in your immediate circles, not anyone tangentially related either in case the fallout spills on your day. You realize that forgiveness is not a requirement for atonement. So you feel a bit at ease until someone says again, it's someone else's job to apologize for everything awful in the world. And it's the people most capable of forgiving that are the only ones made to atone. So you lean on their forgiveness, both for the things we've caused and the things we haven't. You then run out of tile. You realize how mortal you are. And it's not in the same way as when you fall and bust your knee as a kid and bleed for the first time, you realize how mortal you are. And it's not in the same way as when you cut your hand as an adult, see that lump on your doctor's screen or hear your child say that they hate you for the first time, you realize how mortal you are. And it's not in the same way as when you're a person of color and someone is killed for no reason. Over and over again, you realize how mortal you are. And it's not in the same way as if you're a person of color 
and politicians say something dehumanizing again, or your professor, or your boss, or it's your neighbor this time, you realize how mortal you are. And it's not in the same way as when you're a person of color and you get sick or are born or persist, you realize how mortal you are. It's in a different way, a way where the burden is shared by everyone and by some much more than others and by each of us much more than our past selves. And there isn't a lesson in kindergarten for what to do when things break except to apologize. And that's no use right now because you're not sure who to apologize to, whether it's your body or it's other people or it's the healthcare workers like your own mother or it's the postal workers or it's the checkout people or it's the gig driver that takes you to the hospital when you start exhibiting an arrhythmia, or it's the pieces of fabric that you twist and wring and tear when you're worried until only it's a ghost of a fabric, or it's your country until only it's a ghost of a social fabric. So you lie in bed instead and realize how mortal you are. And this poem is also about blackness. So you dig deep into the reserves of tile, commissioning old pieces of glass, bone, conviction, or something more durable, and you frantically build and weld and build and weld until there is nothing left. Some things that haven't been stopped by COVID-19. Wars, domestic violence, famine, displacement, pestilence, our will to live. Hey. <laughs> thank you so much, Emmy. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you for having me. Amplify our important message by leaving a review or subscribing. Collaborate with us to encourage more people to shout for change. And be on the lookout. We have more episodes coming soon, and I can't wait to share them with you. From At The Table, I'm Dr. Lamb Thank you for joining us.